Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Before we get going, I want to give a quick word about one of our sponsors. This is a bit unusual. It's one of our ongoing sponsors who sponsors both this podcast and Longform itself. It's Pitt Writers. It's the writing program at the University of Pittsburgh. It's a graduate program. They have fiction, nonfiction, poetry. Uh, It's run by Jean Marie Laskus, who is uh, a great friend to this show and a great writer. Um, many of the interns who've worked on this show have come from there, thanks to them. Um, they bring us there to teach once a semester and uh, interact with students, so it's really uh, a great program and it's been a great relationship. If you're interested in applying for the next semester, you can go to Longform and there's a little uh, link in the sidebar to Pit Writers and you can find out all the info there. Thank you very much to the writing program at University of Pittsburgh for their ongoing support of the show. Hi, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, here with Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Hey, guys. It's good to be back for my second week back, Aaron. Okay. <laughs> I made a mistake. I thought this was Evan's comeback party, but apparently we already had that last we were week. here last but week. But we can celebrate something new, which is that this office has water again. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of bitching about the fact that we ran out of water for two days. Yeah. Because people drank too much water. How, how long do you think it would take before, like, oh, without us having water, for things to descend into total chaos here? Wait, my, I, my question who, is, how long would it take without us having water that someone else would get water other than me, rather than just tell me that we were out of water? I just forget yeah. though. Is it? It's, it is you that's in charge of the water, right? <laughs> it's like on your your job is the it's water only because I'm the only person responsible enough to <laughs> fill up the water. Evan, uh, uh, do we have any water? I think we should do one episode where there, we don't have a guest and we just air all grievances. <laughs> <laughs> but this week will this not, not be that, that episode. This will be the episode in which I interview S.L. Price from Sports Illustrated. Um, he is a veteran sports writer. He wrote one of my favorite all-time sports pieces about a town. Max, what is that town called? It's, uh, it's Aliquippa, just outside Ali- of Pittsburgh. Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. That is an incredible story. Which has turned out a huge number of uh, NFL stars and is also a very interesting community. He's written about um, baseball in Cuba. Um, anyway, he came down here actually because a previous guest on this show, Bryn Jonathan Butler, had a book release party for his book about boxing in Cuba and his years living in Cuba and so I thought I would have him in and it was great. We've got, we've had some great Cuba coverage. Yeah, we're, we're tapped out now. No more Cuba after this. One. I think we need to go do some podcasts from Cuba. I like. Remote, remote you know what podcasts. they got down there? Water. That <laughs> <laughs> it's not free. Uh, do we have any sponsors this week? I'll tell you what is free. What? Tiny letter. Oh, you get a, you get a free newsletter from them? That's right. It's a simple, elegant way to send it. How, much, how much it would cost me to set up a simple, elegant newsletter? I'm going to say uh, right around nothing. Bagel. Wow. Zero. Wow. Zero. Uh, thanks to MailChimp and Tiny Letter. Uh, thanks again to them for sponsoring our third anniversary party, which I still have a hangover from. Anyway, here's Aaron with this price. Uh, welcome, Scott. AKA SL Price, how how did you uh, how did you originally come by uh, the the double initial byline? I didn't like my name. Oh, okay, <laughs> yeah, I, I I always signed my signature SL Price, and when I started writing for uh, newspapers, I, I didn't love my name, and yeah. I thought this will this will be good, and and you know this way I can I can it's my signature, and I can put it down on paper. You have been at Sports Illustrated now for more than twenty years, yep. I, th- I believe. Are you, are you the 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 old man on the totem pole at that point? I mean, does that make you the most senior writer, or is someone well, longer than you? No, 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 no. I mean, Peter King's been there. Verducci, oh, right, Verducci's right. been there. Tim Tim Layden and I came in at the same time. Right. Um, uh, Austin Murphy. There, there are a lot of people who have been there uh, longer than I have. 
I had a um, I had a writer named Andy Greenwald on the show a few weeks ago, and he he writes about TV for Grantland. And one of his one of the first questions I had for him was about his TV watching habits, like mm-hmm. how a professional critic watches TV. Right. So I'm interested as someone who's been professionally involved with sports for more than two decades. What is your what is your relationship to actually watching sports? Uh, I watch it. I mean, I watch it pretty pretty seriously but yep. but also as a writer I try and watch things that are not sports things that are not and I read things that are not sports because you know 8 hours of my day or 6 hours of my day are 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 so steeped in sports of uh, of consuming sports thinking about sports watching sports uh that I, I first of all as a human being I'd, I'd like to <laughs> you you know, have, a have a little bit different uh, yeah. uh you know uh, different things coming in but also, I think it helps me as a as a writer. And also, I I mean, I I tend to be a parachute guy. I, yeah. I I'll drop in to places and and sort of be forced to become an instant expert. And it helps to know a lot about a about a lot of things. Now, again, it's just also a matter of interest. I mean, you know, I'm also interested in those things. Right. Um, but you know, I I'm watching the the finals like everybody else. And, and yeah, it's interesting because um, you know, I'll go to a baseball game. And I almost never clap. Right, because I'm used to even though if, if I'm in the stands with my kids <laughs> and they're cheering, you know, yeah. and I, I I sort of almost don't know how to do it because I'm I'm so used to being the observer and I'm watching it even when I'm a fan, and there are certain teams I like or whatever, it's 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 weird to me. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say like you um, you labor primarily in the uh, long form realms of sports writing. Um, most of your stories, a single game or even a season can be just sort of a footnote in the story that's usually a story, a larger story about someone's life or a particular period. So I was wondering, like, are you still seeing things when you see, like, a game of the finals last night that sort of interests you as a writer? Do those, like, overlap at all? Do you kind of have an urge, like, oh, God, I should, I could write about that? Well, keep in mind, I mean, I also uh, have done a lot of tennis. I, since uh, since right. 1994, I've covered tennis for Sports Illustrated um, we're not doing events as much anymore, so that's changed. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, I was doing two to three slams a year mm-hmm. and, and writing, again, that wasn't live for the web for most of the time. But in the last few years uh, when I was going, I was writing for the web. And I was doing maybe, uh, sometimes I was doing things like, you know, off live events, but sometimes I would take a live event and write about it the next day. You know, yeah. Andy Roddick's retirement, last match, whatever, something like that, or Serena, or or the finals yeah. out of out of um, you know Flushing Meadow or, or or Wimbledon or Andy Murray winning for the first time. So I love covering live events for a couple reasons, and I love being at an event for a couple reasons. One is, is there's just it's just fun, yeah. and there's energy, and you're with other people. You're also if if you're thrown together for any amount of time um, doing a live event. You know, ideas marinate and pop up. I mean, I, I did a, a bonus on, on on Pancho Gonzalez that came from being at tennis, obviously, but also <clears throat> I did a piece on John Calipari, which came from, weirdly enough, from me covering the U.S. Open just because I was talking to people and we, we were batting around ideas or just babbling about something, uh, either in a bar or over lunch or whatever. And um, that sort of ferment of ideas, you can't really get at home when you're by yourself or right. or when you're parachuting in on one story and just doing that. So there are certain things I, I really do enjoy about covering live sports. And I'm sort of interested, when you like, you so you're saying like, uh, you know, Kalapari, that comes out of something that happened at the U.S. Open. Are you, like, do you have a giant list of stories you want to do and you're kind of seeing like which one you can get your bosses to do or are you just pulling these out on the fly? Because like when I take something like that profile you did of Kalapari, there's no sort of optimal moment to write a profile of Calipari. You could right. have written him uh, a story about him at his low right. when he was being investigated. You kind of caught him on the upswing, yep. but not like so far up the sw- upswing that people weren't like, "Hey, that guy's a criminal." Right. Um, like, how do you how do you decide right now? I'm going to do Calipari. Uh, you know, Calipari just struck me. Uh, for example, uh, we were at the U.S. Open and, and talking about it. And I can't even remember who I was who was talking to about it. Might have been Wertheim. It might have been somebody else. We hadn't ever done. Him. I mean, as a sports, yeah. sports Illustrated, hadn't really done him in full. And really, it seems so. It seems crazy. I know, <laughs> and 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 I could be missing something, but yeah, I don't sure. recall it. And I, you know, he had just got to Kentucky, and and it, and he was by far the most talked about guy in college basketball. I mean, he was the lightning rod, pro and con. I mean, yeah. and for and for all the reasons we all know. 
So to me, that was just straight up obvious. And when I said it to my boss, I really want to do this. They're like, okay, great. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's probably 50-50. Yeah. I mean, there are times when they've come to me, editors with great ideas. Um, a few years ago, I did a story about Mike Coolball, who got hit by a foul ball and was killed, a minor league baseball coach. And that was brought to me by the editors. And it was an incredible story that I was lucky enough to work on. And I ended up writing a book about it. And that was all because of an editor's suggestion. Yeah. It just depends. And it's probably about 50-50. Now, I'm interested, when you take someone like Calipari, who has this massive back history going back quite a long time that is complicated, involves a lot of hearsay, a lot of of gray area kind of uh, events, like when you're getting ready to write about him, how do you unpack that history and decide what is going to go into your story and, and sort of what kind of a tone to take around it? Well... Uh, to tell you the truth, with Calipari, my my entire animating principle was, I'm I'm not going to write anything hearsay, uh-huh. because there's so much. First of all, I love the gray. I, yeah. I would rather have gray than black and white. Black right. black and white to me is is horrible. But with Calipari, there were so many stories written about him, and writers would you know throw them out as you know, well people say this. For example, uh, Calipari was there's a famous story that he supposedly while recruiting at Pitt basically said that um, he was telling a recruit that he wanted that that uh, Luke Karnasek had cancer and so he shouldn't go to St. John's. And that story was all over the place about Calipari and stories about Calipari. And I, I, I said, I'm not going to write anything that I'm not going to track down. Right. So, so the scary thing about that story is that it took me half a day to find the kid, the recruit, yeah. who... Who he supposedly said this to? So how do you find out which kid it is? Um, how did I find? I, he was named. He was. Oh, named, he was, he was named. named. Like was... I found like an old story where he was named or whatever. I, and and you know, in one story he was named. So I called him up. Yeah. And I said, yeah, "Did he say it?" Yeah. And he said, "No." And and, and of course, and even, he, had he ever gotten a call? Well, from hold on. So, so I said, <laughs> so, I, so I said, "No." He said, "No." And of course, you know, maybe he did, and he likes Calipari. You know, yeah, whatever. Sure. But he's like, no, my entire family has cancer. If he had something, my my, you know, mom or sister died, and this is yeah. all in the story. Yeah. But he basically said, if he had said something like that, I would have found it disgusting. I mean, it was incredibly yeah. heartfelt and in, in, in emphatic response. And at the end of it, I said, well, has any and this is twenty years old. I said, has any reporter ever re- talked to you about this? And he goes, no, no. He said uh, about, you know, about six months ago, a New Yorker reporter reached out to me, and I, I just didn't get it back to him. So there's that. And so. You know, I didn't want to do that with Calipari because it was so easy and right. it's so forgiven because a lot of people don't like him. How many rumors like that did uh, you have to I check would, out? I would say I ran down three. And um, I, I'd have to go. I haven't looked at the story in a and, long time. And, di- and were you able to like? Yeah, get, for example, get satisfaction. For, well, for example, the Patino story about uh, there's a there was a story about Patino, Rick Patino helping Calipari get his job early on. Yeah, um, I think at UMass, but I, I, I can't remember exactly. And I ran that down. Yeah. And not true. You know, I mean, so, but these were all things that were out there about Calipari. Now, I had no dog in the fight, and I don't, you know, I wasn't looking to make Calipari look good, look bad, whatever. And I, I think there are parts of the story where he doesn't look particularly great. Yeah. But my feeling was, I'm just going to print what I, what I what I can run down. I'm not going to print any of those things unless I can run it down and at least tease it out and then let, let the reader decide. And is that something that, that an editor, like if you... That's in some ways sort of writing within that same grayness, saying yeah, like, I, absolutely. I, have fa- yeah. I have found a um, complicated uh-huh. and flawed but not entirely yeah. clear character. And by the way, thank God yeah. when you get that. Right. When you get that. So like, does an editor say, hey, this piece should be more of a hit on Cal- him no. or more? So no, that, no, that, no. That ethical compass you are firmly in sort of control of. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think they would call me on it if... I, I, you know, if, you know, hey, this needs more of this or that, but no one has ever, I've never been issued a directive by anybody, go to yeah. newspapers or whatever, say, ah, oh, you got to go get that guy. Right. You know, I, 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 I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if I'm a hit artist or, you know, whatever. I don't think so, but I'm just saying I, yeah. that's, that's, that's never been said. And with Calipari, uh, I got almost no direction. They're like, they're, they're happy when a guy is exci- when, when a writer is excited to do a story and want, and volunteers a story and they like it. Yeah, they're overjoyed because yeah. they know that energy is gonna is gonna you know hopefully make its way into the story, but also because you're interested enough to do the work. And look, I I did a story about um, point guard of army 
mm-hmm. this year, Max Lennox, yeah. um, he, captain of Army. Yeah. And he had been raised by two gay white fathers in, uh, in North Carolina. And uh, he was a crack baby from Philadelphia, uh, African-American. So automatically great story. That story was five years in the making, in, yeah. in a sense, because I've, I've known about Max for a long time. He's where, from where I live. And my editors never said, well, you know, this is a sensitive issue, race, mm-hmm. yep. you know, homosexuality, don't ask, don't tell, so on and so forth, army, nothing. You know, and gave me all the time in the world. And, and when I'd say, look, it, I, I, it's not there yet. We can't, you know, family's not interested, not ready yet. We, you know, whenever they are, we will, you know, we're not going to force this, but they were incredibly great about it. I think that, like, the reason I ask is I'm not totally clear in my own mind about exactly what I'm trying to get my sure. finger on here. But with the with the Ray Rice scandal right. and some of the stuff that went down with ESPN mm-hmm. and its relationship to the to, to the NFL there, right. there's this weird double double idea, one of which is we as a society need to be tougher on athletes right. and these leagues who mostly around domestic violence, but... Just in general, right. uh, this idea of zero tolerance, and then there was a, a, a different flip message, which was um, like with Bill Simmons getting suspended. Right. We also don't tolerate an investigation into the NFL itself. It, it, it sort of throws the athlete under the bus, but says that there are certain areas that are in some ways off limits to the sports journalist. Now, we could have a nuanced discussion. Sure. Particularly, these companies have different relationships. But I think that there's an essential question when you look at um, a magazine like Sports Illustrated of like, what do we think of these athletes? Are we trying to report on the ones who are great and make them gods among ourselves? Or are we reporting on people who've who've fucked up and and sort of say this isn't sportsman like? Like, I guess... You mean is there is there a general philosophy? Is yeah. what you're or, or and it's something that we feel as writers yeah. that we need to hew to? Like yeah, or does it like does it feel like wow in this issue we can't have all all negative stories or anything like that? Because it seems like that often is the choice in sports is bet- is between a certain like kind of hero worship right. and a fallen hero right. uh, shaming, I guess. Well, I, I I mean all I can tell you is I am I've been there for twenty years. They yeah. treat me great. Mm-hmm. They have treated me great. And yeah. the stories I come up with are not, you know, clickbait yeah. usually. Yeah. Uh, so, um, I mean, I, I maybe once in a while, but but overall, they're, and they're almost always in the gray. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. I did a piece on Duke Lacrosse with Pharrell Evans, a very talented golf writer um, yeah. uh, at ESPN. Um, I think he's no longer there. But we went down in the middle of the whole Duke Lacrosse thing, yeah. and our story, I dare say, was uh, pretty... Uh, pretty gray, pretty gray and shaded, and at a time dealing with the victim and her yes. things. And Mike Nifong, as a prosecutor, did not hew to the uh, sort of the, the standard narrative at the time. Yeah, you know, nobody was saying you have to. No one was. No one at SI was saying you got to. You know, we. Well, this isn't what everybody else is saying. You know, they were. They have you watched that documentary, um, The Staircase? I've not. It's a really fantastic uh, documentary about this sort of ambiguous murder, but Mike Nifong was all, it's also uh, there, and he's also the prosecutor. And I didn't know was this prior to Duke Lacrosse? Uh, yeah, has to be. Has, has to, to be. be. Yeah, yeah has it to was, be. I think that the original trial was the late nineties. Wow. Um, I, no, I'm not aware. But of that then at all. I think he was also uh, accused of some sort of misconduct around that. Also, um, uh, in I, terms of, I believe, in terms of leaking. Um, court documents to the press before they were introduced. I've never seen anything like Mike Nifong. I've yeah. never seen. You, guys, you should like see this documentary because yeah. I mean he's he's a major character. And then I was like, and then I had to Google it and I was like, wait, is that the same? Like, but then it makes sense. It's like it's it's a small town. It it's a... Like there's someone's the top the top of the prosecutor's right. office. Like yeah. you get all the big cases as they come in. But, but to your point, yeah, I mean, I I I've never gotten an idea from SI. Hey, we're here to celebrate. We're here to, you know, right. I, at least dropping in my lap. Yeah. No one has ever said that's too negative. That's too positive. Nor have they said, well, let's not do that story. I mean, there's sometimes the story story ideas dopey. Mine, you know, I come right. up with something that doesn't work. Yeah. But I've never gotten it. I've gotten it on its merits. I've gotten it judged on its merits. You know, whether the idea works, not not whether it mixes with any sort of overarching Sports Illustrated philosophy of sports. <laughs> 
Hey, I'm going to pause things here to give you a quick word from our sponsor, Psych. The sponsor is us. I'm taking over the show to tell you about the Longform app. Um, it's If you've been to longform.org, you know that we recommend great articles every day. What if you could take those articles and put them in an app so they were waiting for you offline, but you could also do stuff like follow your favorite writers who've been on this show, follow publishers, and see what articles are most popular. It's like the whole internet condensed with only the good stuff and none of the clickbait and crap. Uh, we work hard on it. I have a new version that I was just working on. Um, anyway, if you like the show, if you like our site, check out our app. It's unfortunately only for iOS right now. We hope someday to do Android. But for now, if you have an iPhone or an iPad, go to the App Store and look for Longform or go to longform.org slash app. Here I am back with SL Price. Let's talk about that Duke story. Sure. And I mean, that's probably the ultimate ca- case among the stories you've done of going into a very highly charged story right. that also lots of other people are pursuing right. simultaneously. So when you're in an atmosphere like that, what, what have you learned about doing gray stories like that and and, and working within the, those confines? Like when you start talking to people for a story like that, right. how like how do you start building up that? gray case. Well, I, I will tell you that, I mean, Duke Lacrosse is sui generis. I mean, it's one of these things that, like, is an animal that was unlike any other in journalism for a lot of different reasons that we all, yeah. you know, we can all talk about. But I will say that, first of all, Pharrell had gone down there first, and he had made contact with the supposed victim of the uh, in the case. Yeah. And Pharrell had done some great legwork in terms of that side of the case. And was casting a suspicious eye on her and her story almost immediately with inside, you know, with us. Yeah, yeah. I made contact with the Pressler family, uh, which is Mike Pressler, the coach, and he hadn't spoken to the press and, uh, you, you know, so established a, a confidence there, I guess. And, and you know, the weird thing about that story was it was, it was you know, kaleidoscopic. I mean, there were a lot of different segments and, and, and stuff. But all of it was based on the reporting. And the more you report, the grayer it gets. The more yeah. you report, the more you know, the more you understand that, that uh, it, it almost never hews to the narrative. And, I'll, and again, certain things are just obvious. And what I mean by that is it's not, not, you know, you're meeting somebody in a parking garage by yourself. Mike Nifon, we were all, uh, me and I think Buzz Bissinger was there. There was tons of reporters sitting in the antechamber outside Mike Nifong's office, Okay. And Mike Nifong knew we were all there, no comment, you know, wasn't talking. Yeah. And then every, I don't know, hour or so, he'd come strolling out to get a drink of water out of the water fountain. Now, I'm told he had at least a bathroom or a water fountain in his <laughs> office. Yeah. But the point being is that he, he trooped through and people would get around and he'd say something snarky. Yeah. But nothing, but it was just bizarre. He needed to come out there. And it was, it was, I... I've I've never seen a lawyer whose instrument is their mouth, who is yeah. their is their verbiage, less in control of their primary instrument. And then I went to a, a campaign rally, and 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 because he was running for office, and he was yeah. saying, you know, this is like my first day there, and he's saying, I, you know, I'm not going to allow a, a rapist from Duke to get away with it. And I'm like, you're the prosecutor. Yeah. This case hasn't even been tried yet. And yeah. I'm thinking, are you supposed to be saying that? Yeah. And 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 I just these things were in plain sight. Yeah. And, and, and I found that really dubious and was able to make contact with people uh, around his office. And, and you just keep pushing. So I, I have a couple que- you, you couple questions. Like I, We can talk about them through the Duke case, but I think these probably yeah. reoccur. So the first one is when you say, hey, I'm here from Sports Illustrated, right. a sports magazine. I'm here to talk about this rape case. Right. Is there a prejudice against you as the sports reporter? I mean, is that do do people? How do people react to that as opposed to I'm here from the New York Times or anywhere else? Well, I mean, I've done. I mean, I did in 1994. The second story I did for Sports Illustrated was about Colombian drug cartels yeah. and 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 um, their influence on on soccer, the soccer teams in Colombia. Yeah, and. Um, you know, when you go down to Sports Illustrated, they th- they thought it was just going to be a sports story, right? But of course, narco was sort of the the prefix for almost every word in in Colombia. It was a natural to ask about these things as well. Also, for example, in Colombia, there was an idea that among journalists and others that speaking about this issue through sports 
might be the only safe way of doing it. You know, right. I mean, so 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 in some ways it's actually quite helpful. So therefore, I think that helped me with Mike Pressler, for whatever reason, and I don't know for sure, but I perhaps understood Mike Pressler in a way. You know, I would understand a coach in a way right. that perhaps a legal journal would not. So that's sort of how you explain yourself as a Sports Illustrated reporter. Right. I'm interested in how you explain yourself as a parachuter. Mm -hmm. Like, I know that in a lot of these cases, particularly when there's a chance that a place will be depicted poorly, yep. in the case of Duke, yep. both Duke and the Duke Ross team, in the case, right. um, you know, you have this other story, which I really want to talk about, about a town in uh, Pennsylvania mm. that has turned out a lot of um, NFL players. Right. These are all places that are vulnerable to mm -hmm. being to their portrayal in one of your stories. Right. You're dropping in from the outside. Like, how, how do you earn trust and how do you explain yourself as a parachuter? I mean, I I, I don't have a secret formula. Yeah. I mean, Aliquippa, which is what you're referring yes, to. I, I was going to let you pronounce it first. That's okay. I mean, <laughs> Aliquippa, they, I mean, they're in some ways used to not national media, but attention because they have yeah. these incredible players who have come through there. So th they were happy to see me. Right. You know, but I also said, I, I, I don't want to write just about football. I want to write about what's happened to this town and what and why it's important. And and I think the town is important. Like, I think it's a, a bellwether in a lot of ways about a, a lot of issues in America. So I would say that, like, well, first of all, where did that story come from? Like, where what in, where did you hear about? I mean, I guess I've maybe heard about it, but where did it sort of uh, enter your radar that there was more to it than this town has produced a bunch of ads? Well, again, uh, I can take zero credit for it, which <laughs> is an editor at Sports Illustrated, Mark yeah. Mravik. Uh, his grandfather, I believe, Bobo, was a union organizer in Aliquippa. His parents grew up there. It's a coal town. I, uh, Steel town. Steel town. And, um, and... He basically sent an email out and said, hey, uh, there's this town that, you know, Tony Dorsett, Mike Ditka are, are from uh, Revis. I think Revis was there from there at the time. Uh, would you be interested in going up? And I was like, sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I went up there and and I mean, it was unbelievable, unbelievably rich story. And at the time, not that it hadn't been written in Pittsburgh. I mean, it had been, been, it had been absolutely um, chronicled in the Pittsburgh papers very well, Beaver County Times. But at the time, I'm not sure how much it had been written nationally. Um, and after I went up there, I mean, I think ESPN went up like three times and, and did pieces and, and other things. And, 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 and again, that's, that's not me. It's because the story was so incredibly rich. Well, there's probably three veins in that story that I think are each rich enough almost to justify a story. It's a story of a steel, a booming steel town of 30 or 40,000 yeah. reduced to a impoverished yep. town of 10,000 right. um, that barely has enough uh, people to so to support a football team, much right. less a championship football team. Yep. It's also a town story of a town with a massive racial divide, yep. um, of which football is in many ways one of the only bridges. No question. Um, and then it's also the, the story of these, these players who made it out, and, and also the story of a lot of players who didn't make right. it out so when you as you started to like did you see all of those points of the story in advance or did those come to you well not in advance but pretty darn quick yeah yeah i mean it's it's it was it that's the thing it was this is the writer's gold i mean you know basically yeah. you drop into a place nobody is there but yeah. you you know and i mean no other reporters right yeah. it's not like you know you're in the yankees clubhouse and you know this is where tony dorsett grew up and I call up Tony, and he goes, "Yeah, I'm, I'm at this pit reunion. Why don't we drive up together?" I mean, yeah, you know. And it, you know, Ditka's got a steakhouse, you know, 20 minutes down the down the road. I end up talking to him. It's, it's. I mean, it's a story that you you can't believe is is there and no one else has done yet. And yeah. and and it's and to tell you the truth, I mean, here's my segue. But this is sort of how Cuba is for writers. Yes. In the sense that, I mean, I started going down there in the 90s. Yeah. And and, I mean. If you can't write a good story about Cuba, you, you give up writing. And yeah. what I mean is, is that I mean, you know, you have to work really hard to do a bad story about it because these stakes are so high and clear. Yeah. The the drama is so high and clear, and the people are so incredibly honest and fascinating. And then, meanwhile, you have the backdrop of Fidel and Cold War anxieties and, and right. everything else. I mean, it's just, it was extraordinary. And it's also a society in which. Um, 
sports in, in many ways plays as a mirror for many of the other dramas. Playing. Same with Aliquippa. Yes. And if you'll and same with Columbia. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, no. I'm, what, I'm, yeah. what I'm saying is this, this, this is, is this is where you operate. This is what I love. Yes. I mean, I love the intersection of sports and culture. I yes. mean, I, that, that to me, that's why Olympics are always fun to write about. Although you know, not not as much as they used to be. Yeah. But still, I mean, I you know, I went to China and did a big story about China prior to the why. What does it mean? This Olympics, everybody did it, but you know, whatever. You, I, that intersection of sports and culture is the fa- is the fascinating story. And the fact is, with sports, yeah, is that if you write about sports under the umbrella of sports, and people think they're just reading about sports, they'll read about drug use. Yeah, they'll read about sex. They'll Com- read about communism. sex change. They'll read about communism. Yeah. They'll read about issues they couldn't possibly care about, and if they saw them in any other part of the paper, they yes. would just gloss over. But because it's in sports, because there is a boxing ring or a baseball field or a football field, yeah. they'll be more patient, and you can get some issues under the under the transom that they didn't expect. I mean, I, I wrote a book about Cuba yes. pitching around Fidel. Pitching around Fidel. And... And my whole, I mean, I, I, I would love to find it in a travel section someday because right. to me it was a cultural study under the guise of a sports book. I, just, I, wanted to under, I wanted people to come away from the book. Yes, you learn about Teofilo Stevenson and, and all the great baseball and, and the defectors. And it was, in the, it was written in the midst of all the great defections, um, the great defection wave um, of the 90s. But in essence, I wanted people to come away and say, oh, so that's what it's like in Cuba now. That's, those are the issues at stake there. This is what people are dealing with, not... Well, he hits 388 against right-handers. So we're um, you're in town actually right now. Uh, this was serendipitous timing because um, uh, someone who's been on the show previously, uh, Burton Jonathan Butler, has a new book coming out. Uh, I believe called uh, Domino Diaries, right. and I'm interviewing both him and you on stage tonight about um, which will now be in the past by the time people hear right. this, but the book will be still widely available. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll probably be asking this tonight, but I might as well yeah. uh, get the answer now. So it's like. You know, Cuba is in one one is kind of an ultimate parachute kind of place. Yeah. I mean, there's I, I don't I assume that there are is writing from with sports journalism from within Cuba, but I, I haven't read any. Um, almost everyone who's reporting, at least in the English language, right. is reporting on a, a parachute basis there. No question. So like, I've been that guy. Like I, you know, I took a trip to Vietnam this year, mm-hmm. and I like had all sorts of like rich things to say about Vietnam and the Vietnamese people, which thankfully I don't embarrass myself by doing. Right. And, but I, like, I know in my mind, I have that sort of internal handbrake that goes like, you have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. Right. And I assume that when you sit down in Cuba and you start getting these amazing stories, you're kind of like, this is great stuff, but I still don't know what I'm talking about. How, like, how do you write around the problem of having no idea what the well, fuck you're they, well, talking I, about? Well, I mean, my my, I mean, philosophy is far too you know you know highfalutin a word for what I'm talking about here. But I mean, my idea is simply, you have to report like you know nothing, and then at some point, yeah, you will suddenly reach a point of critical mass where you can fool yourself, where you do fool yourself into suddenly thinking. I almost, I think I know more about this than just about anybody. Yeah, it takes me like three hours to get to that. Right? Point. No, it takes me it takes me a little bit longer. Yeah, because it it is based on report, and it probably takes me about. I mean, how long were you in Cuba? Well, I went seven up? different times. Seven times, and 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 I went for the Pan Am Games in 1991, and my last visit was 98. And I'll take it a, a step further and then come back, yeah. which is that I I had to do once when I was living in Europe for Sports Illustrated. I had to do. I, I went to Pakistan to do a story about India Pakistan cricket. Yeah. And uh, India's first visit to Pakistan in 14 years. So not only did I have to drop into—I mean, this is the ultimate parachute job. I'm saying it was a great story, but I I dropped in. I had to become an instant expert, not just on Pakistan-India relations, the 47 partition, um, nuclear uh, ambitions and clashes, and the intricacies of cricket. And yes. then make it sort of somehow palatable. Like, were you even familiar with the rules of cricket no, prior to that? Story? No, okay. I had so you're starting, yeah. oh, no, I was completely cold. Are you like thinking about what would it be like if a cricket fan yeah. reads this? Yeah, well, I had, you imagine like someone uh, reporting on their first baseball, baseball game. game. Yeah. yeah, and I and I had friends who knew cricket, and I said, yeah. "You got to. I mean, you got to help me out here." Yeah, I mean, and you know, look, the story. Thank God, but Sports Illustrated wasn't looking for. Right. Tell us, you know, the inside, you know, of a spin bowler. You know, I mean, yeah. it, was, it wasn't that kind of thing. It was, it was, 
what's going on here and and what's going on with Pakistan and India. But even that is, yeah. you know, I mean, basically they didn't riot. There right. was supposedly going to be just blood in the streets. Right. And instead, it was incredibly peaceful. Yeah. And it was the first time a lot of Indians had gone back to Lahore yeah. since the partition. So families were reuniting, so on and so forth. And to tell you the truth, I actually did have some experience with that because of Cuba. Because yeah. Cuba basically, I think, is, you know, it's like, it, it, it broke up families as much as the American Civil War did. You had brothers, uh, you know, uh, there were two boxing promoters, uh, boxing coach, national boxing coach of Cuba, and the biggest boxing promoter in Miami were brothers. Yeah. I don't think they were twins, but they were brothers. They might have been twins. And one lived in Miami and had defected, and one was in part of the regime. Yeah. And, you know, if, if you can't write a story out of that, yeah. you're sunk. You know, yeah. and so so all I'm saying is... I. I didn't have to know the intricacies, although I did find out the intricacies yeah. of, of, you know, of Castro's, you know, walk from, you know, supposed revolutionary, you know, the democratic revolutionary to communism. But neither does my reader want to see that or, right. or has that understanding. But what my reader does know is my reader probably has a brother. Yeah. And, and knows about that tension. Yeah. And so I try and universalize it through that, through very basic, you know, if you can find that, you're lucky. And so you go down there and you, you do know nothing and you know you know nothing. And you have the insecurity and fear of knowing you know nothing and you better find out fast. And, you, that, and, and not just find out fast, but exhaustively. But at some point, like I said, you, you get to the point where you're like, oh, no, I know, I know this, which, yeah. is, which is semi-insane. Yeah, do you is, like, do you run it by, like when you're doing, had that Cuba book, did you say like, hey, people who... Cubans, like, right. please read this well, and, I did, uh, and, and critique where where am sure, I wrong? Or, sure, no, no, I I, I had uh, I had four people read the manuscript. Now, now keep in mind that I had written like four or five pieces for SI prior right, to the right. book this coming was out. Sort of like a, but still, yeah, I had one person read it who was Cuban. Yeah, and I wanted her to just take my head off if I yeah. was wrong. You know, I had somebody else who I respected as a stylist who I wanted to make sure I wasn't clanging, you know, too badly in places. I had another person who was a reporter. You know, I just and I. Triang- I want to say triangulated, but yeah. I quadrupled or whatever, and had everybody. And when two or three agreed, I was like immediately changing it. You know, I mean, that, right. so so what I'm saying, yeah, I, I I look for backup. And what do you like? What do you find in those parachutes? Like, what is the co- most common thing you get wrong, or like, what are the patterns of getting things wrong that you find yourself getting into when you're in unfamiliar situations? Um, you know, I've gotten things wrong in so many different yeah. human <laughs> ways that you know, I mean, I I I can't say there's a a real through line. Uh, I mean, there's a humility. I mean, the weird thing about you know writers is they're you know insecure egomaniacs. You know, they they but but you've got to have a real serious dose of humility if you want because if you want people to talk to you because you really are invading their life. Yeah. They really are doing you a favor. It it really is important to them in a way it isn't important to you. This is just a story for you. This is their life. I don't say I'm going to take your side. I don't say I'm going to rip you. I say I'm going to report the devil out of it, and but I'm going to be as fair as possible. And please help me to understand. You talked a little about in terms of that Kalapari story about sort of shedding some of the preconceived yeah. mythology, and I think that the story you did about Aliquippa has a really beautiful but hard to swallow conclusion in certain ways, which yeah. is after you've followed all of these athletes who've come from this extremely violent, extremely dangerous place that has produced many NFL players, you kind of want that narrative to end with, and like the guys who worked really hard and, and like try, you know, put their heart into it, they made it out. Right. And the, the do nothing, like no good guys, like those were the guys who got shot. But what actually happened is many of the most beloved um, hardest working people yeah, played a little uh, D two ball, came back, right. are now in jail or got murdered. Some of the people who weren't, you know, like it, it, there isn't such a like rational arc to the universe Absolutely that not. hard work br- brings you uh, out of a situation like that. Like I'm interested in that case when, when you when you come upon a, uh, a truth and it's not totally comfortable, how you regard that I as regard a writer. It, I, I, I thank God that I've come upon it that way. Yeah. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't want an easy truth because I don't think humans are easy. <laughs> I mean, I'm writing a book about Aliquippa. It's, oh, it's, it's not easy. Yeah. I mean, because I think it's an important place. I think it's a microcosm of what's happened in this country over the last 50 years, maybe even the last 100, because basically uh, started by Eastern European 
immigration. Yeah. Like, you know, so many people come through Ellis Island, the Great Migration, blacks coming up from the South. Um, this company town, Steel, they made the, the machines and guns that won World War II, um, and football has been central there. And, and it's an old story, but it's central. And everything that happened there, oddly enough, um, happened in America, but it happened there in an incredibly extreme fashion. I mean, they, there's lots of places that have great football in western Pennsylvania. They just happen to have this corner on a Hall of Famers. I mean, they have more than anybody else, and, yeah. and Revis will probably be a Hall of Famer, too. Ty Law will probably be a Hall You've of Famer. You've got an amazing reveal in the story where it's like, Dicka was playing on the high school basketball team, whose yeah. coach was uh, Press, Press Maravich, Maravich. Right. whose son was eight-year-old Peter. You're like, what? That, right. that You didn't even have to mention him among the people. There's so many. It's unbelievable. And then, meanwhile, race has always been an issue in America, yeah. but there they had race riots. Drugs was an, America, uh, an issue, obviously, in the 70s and 80s, and, but they had a crack epidemic, and Tony Dorsett's nephew was running a crack ring yeah. in town, the largest crack ring in town. So it was, and, and, you know, essentially uh, the person who broke that crack ring is a former Aliquippa quarterback. And then some other character was like, and my daughter was, it was like some other character yeah. and so his daughter was married exactly. to the director. I mean, and he was a former quip football player also, meaning, meaning yeah. the, the guy yeah. whose daughter, and he, he punched Ali Dorsett in the mouth. So all I'm saying is, that is, uh, uh, and, and it isn't easy. It isn't clean. Yeah. Um, and that's how I feel about Cuba is, I mean, it, it opens you up in a way when you go down to Cuba, when, when you report on Cuba, because it's not a clean story. It's dirty. It's right. gray. But as a writer, you should want that because that's reflective of who we are. We're none of us, yeah. you know, uh, except for maybe Hitler. You know, I'm going to play that Hitler card. <laughs> you know, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, almost nobody um, ha- is all good or all bad. Yeah. And or nor is nor do the rules, you know, uh, you follow you, you follow the rules and you stay clean. Well, a quarterback from quarterback uh, from Aliquippa was shot dead and he was a perfectly great citizen. Yeah. And a, and a great student. And then, you know, there are other guys who who, you know, maybe weren't the greatest citizens who got out and, you know, yeah. you know, found a contract somewhere. So, I mean, it's it's not clean, but it's real. And to me as a writer, you, 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 that's when you know you have a story. So you started at Sports Illustrated in nine, uh, what, what year? 1994. 1994. Yeah. At which point, Sports Illustrated, I believe, was exclusively a print magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, very much known for doing these kind of lar- long, uh, long form features. Right. Um, and now, you know, Sports Illustrated is a is a digital company, right. um, prim- primarily that your stories are getting read more widely on the internet. Does that change at all how you think about doing a long story like this that you really need to um, push through the end? And a story that doesn't necessarily have that immediate appeal. It doesn't right. have a star's name right. in it. It doesn't have a, a, a neat hook in the sports world. Right. Uh, well, I mean, I'll give you – I mean, Max Lennox, uh, the Army yeah. basketball captain I referenced earlier, um, is probably the best way to filter this, which is essentially – I mean that's that's a classic SI story in the yeah. sense of you know it's okay if it's obscure yeah if it if it is a real good story we like it and and Chris Stone and John Wertheim who are running the magazine at this point still have that DNA in their bones and they want to run that kind of story yeah um, uh, however I you know made sure that to let them know if they wanted to do video you know yeah. that we could set that up you know and they did want to do video so they did an accompanying uh-huh. video feature for for the web um I think Aliquippa was one of the earlier ones where they actually did a video feature which, which is beautiful I mean kind of and by the way kind of discouraging because in five minutes yeah uh that video I don't know if you've seen it yeah it's, it's so fantastically well done yeah uh basically did all the work that it took me 11 pages. was the longest story I ever I, wrote. I was thinking about how, like, yeah. your sort of description of, like, a crumbling yeah. town, how that takes, like, it takes, like, 600 words right. to do what you can do yeah. in the background yeah. of an interview yeah. while someone's simultaneously talking. Right. No, I know. And, and, and I mean, that's the power of yeah. the image. I mean, it, it really does a lot of work. And, you know, as a writer, essentially, you're the, you know, cinematographer you're the you're the writer you're the, you're the director you're editing i mean there's a great uh wonder to that because yeah. you're sort of in charge of it but it's a lot of work yeah. um and it's a it work that the camera does a lot does a lot for and you know obviously that's that we we become far more visual than than literate um yeah. as time's gone on and what were you were you the kind of person who wanted to be a sports writer your whole life, or what uh, brought you here? Actually, I was a, I was a history. Uh, I started off wanting to be a history 
professor, you know, yeah. American history. And then I got to college and I switched to English. And um, uh, my best friend uh, was heavily into sports writing, Bruce Schoenfeld, who who just did a piece. He, he did a piece on the Screwball for New York Times Magazine last year, and great piece. And uh, uh, just did something on on wine in the New yeah. York Times Sunday Magazine. And and um, uh, you know the, the 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 cult of sports writing was pretty darn heavy at that time. Sure. Uh, and and um, I transferred to the University of North Carolina, uh, and. Um, I was an English major, and I was, like I said, I was I, I really needed work as a writer. I mean, really, really needed work. And I uh, got on the newspaper, and I went through the sports department because, I, cause in, I mean, I love sports, but also I knew that in a college newspaper, at least at that time, um, that was going to be the most demanding, you know, asking you to write a lot, and I knew I needed to write a lot. Ah. And so and it happened to be when Michael Jordan was in college, James Worthy, um, uh, you know, Carolina had a top five football team. Uh, their baseball team was had had like three or four ma- major leaguers: Walt Weiss, yeah. B.J. Surhoff. It, it was an absurd uh, uh, embarrassment of riches, um, and um, it sort of took off from there. So it sounds like you were both unhappy with your writing at the college level, and then later got a job at Sacramento Bee. We're still unhappy with your. I'm writing. unhappy with it right now. Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> yeah, like, I when mean, did when did you turn the corner? No, and, no, like no. Did you? It's hard. Did, did that work? Also, did the plan of just like writing a lot work for you? I mean, I got, I could, I didn't get, well, I got worse. I mean, some people would say I got worse, but I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I mean, certainly early on, because you're, exper- I mean, look, I cannot tell you the value of the great mid-level newspaper, which no longer exists. Yeah, um, you know, ambitious, sending people, I mean, we had people traveling all over the country and the world. Yeah. You know, we, we, we sent a, we sent a writer to Perth from the Sacramento yeah. Bee to cover the America's Cup, you know, from Sacramento. Yeah. You know, you know, landlocked Sacramento. Oh, sure. Go to Perth for a month. Okay. So, that's gone, and that was a great training ground where you could embarrass yourself and do horrible things, uh, you know, as a writer, and nobody would know it. And of course, there was no internet where you would like basically be, you know, shamed as if your pants were down around your ankles, and yeah. you know, you'd been spanked by everybody because it, 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 you, know, you could make mistakes in private, and your confidence wouldn't be completely shattered. So, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm struggling. I struggle every day. Well, I mean, the other difference is uh, you would you would be failing in public now, but also you would probably be failing for no money right now. You'd be working for a sports blog or something. No one, right. no one is sending a 23-year-old no. uh, out on the road to cover sports for money at this point. That's a that's a coveted job if it's out there. When you when you meet people in their 20s who are yeah. working at Sports <laughs> Illustrated and you talk, like, is it like, I mean, are you not even like sort of seeing eye? Like, do you feel like the job has changed so much that it's hard to even relate? No. Uh, in fact, I think it's absolutely the same. Uh, and what I mean is, in fact, what, well, it ha- look, I'm not a fool. It yeah. has changed. What's interesting is that uh, I thought writing, uh, covering the Sacramento Kings as a 22-year-old at, at, at uh, yeah. at the Sacramento Bee and scared to death. I thought the San Francisco Chronicle, which ran seven columns a day, you yeah. know, was like basically, and the and the beat writers were writing columns basically yeah. as game stories. I'm I'm from there. What What's that guy's name? Ray... Ray Ratto. Ray Ratto. Lowell yeah. Cohn. These yeah. guys were on... I, I covered baseball with, with Ray Ratto. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and Ray Ratto's like game stories were like these incredibly hilarious yeah. columns, okay? Yeah. And the fact is, is, I thought, well, this is this is the future. This is how it's going to be. People, you're going to have more takes. You're going to have more columns. Yeah. You're going to have less game detail because we all know what happened in the game by the right. time the paper comes out. But it turns out I was wrong about that. And what I mean is, is that is that the sports columnist has been devalued, I think, overall, because now everybody's a sports columnist. Absolutely. Everybody can have an opinion. Yeah. But what hasn't changed is information. What hasn't changed is reporting, which hap- my, I, I've always thought you've got to make it new. Okay, you got to tell me something new. The fact is, I covered Michael Jordan. Okay, I covered Isaiah Thomas. I was there for the bird. You know, when he when he t- talked about Larry Bird. You know, whether he was just another good guy if he were if he if he weren't white. The fact is, is anything, poetry, novels, I mean, essays. If you don't tell me something new, if it's just your little take on it, it's not doing anything for anybody. But but if you can somehow move the story forward now with somebody like Jordan, if you can move it uh, or LeBron, if you can move it forward a quarter of an inch, you are. And, and I'm talking about as a long form guy, if you've yeah. if you've reported enough where you can get something that you're telling or some giving people a new way to look at LeBron victory yeah. with Majerus, for example, I was able to one of the few times like 
sort of alter the perception in some ways of this Falstaffian guy. And not, that wasn't my intention, but it was through reporting. I think I told people something new or at least proved something new that people didn't know about it. Now, and that was, you know, you, you move the story ahead by, the, by a mile. Yeah. Now, so, but of course, it's much easier to do that with Rick Majerus because not a lot has been written about Rick Majerus. And right. he's in, okay. But the point, is, the commonality in both of them is report as if you know nothing and try and move the story forward even if it's a half an inch. And that, to me, has not changed. I still think that's valued on the web or anywhere else. That is the story where people say, did you read that? I had no idea. Gary Smith, right? Yeah. Oh, doc, you know, King Longform, right? Check out, check out his Longform podcast. Okay, so Gary, the thing that I didn't know, yeah. when I came out of college, I came out, I'm like, oh, you know, like everybody else, I'd love to write features like Gary yeah. Smith. Which, because I, I wasn't a journalism major, I'm like, you know, well, basically that just means taking the same story and and... Putting it in my voice. Sure. Right? Wrong. Yeah. Gary told you things you'd never even begun to imagine about any of these people. He reported like he was, you know, reporting for his life. And, and of course, the reporting makes the writing better. It gives you more confidence, everything. So you're not just talking out of your ass. You're actually talking from strength and writing from strength. And Gary wrote from more strength than anybody, but was based on reporting. And that's what I learned from both Gary, from really picking apart his work and from being a reporter from being you know somebody who you know was on a beat and was forced to you know basically pick up the paper the next day scared to death thinking I'm going to get my butt kicked here um, and trying to develop sources and so on and so forth but every single story that that I think is a success is because I in some way told you something you didn't know about the subject and almost always it's been grounded in me reporting it and figuring it out through something not just me announcing it from on high I think we're going to top that as a closer, so I'll, uh, I'll save our voices. Um, we're going to talk again tonight. Uh, thank you very much, Scott Price. Thank you. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Uh, thanks very much to S.L. Price for coming in on a short trip to New York. Thanks to my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Thanks to Henry Malofsky, who filled in as editor this week on short notice. Thanks to Molly Bain, our intern. And thanks again to the writing program at the University of Pittsburgh and Tiny Letter for their ongoing sponsorship of the show. Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.